I know that Dallas is ready and excited for the new entertainment district um, downtown, sure. the former Dallas Morning News building. And I know you're very involved in that. So that's creativity, that's excitement, that's creating something new. How do you see this space revitalizing downtown for the greater good? And what do you see, what do you envision the impact to be? Well, if you look at Dallas, and I've had four times, I've had 61 year, you know, kind of view of the city being here. Downtown Dallas needs a catalyst to take it to the next level. Hello and welcome to another episode of Conversations for Good. I'm John Lajere, founder and CEO of Access, a Dallas-based company that's a leader in home healthcare technology. And I served as the 2020 chair of the Dallas Regional Chamber of Commerce. The idea of using business as a force for good is something that I'm deeply, deeply passionate about. And Conversations for Good brings together business leaders, community leaders, and entrepreneurs who embody what it means to use business as a force for good. Today, I am pleased to welcome Ray Washburn, Dallas real estate investor, successful entrepreneur, and developer. Ray, welcome to the conversation. Good. Thank you, John. I'm glad to be here. Excellent, Ray. So let's um, talk about Ray's background. So you all know, Ray was born and raised in Dallas and is a graduate of Southern Methodist University. Over many years, he's been a preeminent real estate developer in Dallas and is always involved in giving back to the community. Since 2009, Ray has been the co-owner, general partner, and president of Highland Park Village, a world-class shopping and dining destination in Dallas. He's a co-founder of the M Crowd Restaurant Group. The last time I checked, they have 46 restaurants, including the Mikosina and Taco Diner restaurant chains. Ray has also gotten involved in public service nationally. Recently, he served as the president and CEO of the United States Overseas Private Investment Corporation from 2017 to 2019, and is also a member of the President's Intelligence Advisory Board. Ray, welcome again. Let's get right to it. Ray, why don't you tell us about yourself briefly? Tell us your life story. Just two minutes. Tell us how you got here today. Sure, sure. Well, thank you, John, and I appreciate you putting me on. I had the great fortune and blessing of my parents moving to Dallas in 1952 from Chicago. I was born in 1960, Baylor Hospital. I'm as Dallas as you could possibly get. I grew up here. I went to Highland Park schools. I went to St. Mark's um, and ended up graduating from Highland Park High School. My, I was one of six children here in Dallas and went to SMU, as you said, and I graduated in 1983 when Eric Dickerson and Craig James were starring at SMU. And, the savings and loan and real estate boom was going on. Oil was at all time highs. I mean, I, the optimism and the enthusiasm and the entrepreneurship of Dallas was something that I was fortunate to grow up with and was injected with because 1960, well, actually 1952, when my parents moved to Dallas, it was around 500,000 people. When I was born, it was around a million. And as you can see today, Dallas was around 8 million people. So I've really got to catch the momentum of the city of in the region as it came along. When I got out of college, I went to, uh, uh, was an entrepreneur really from the beginning. I was buying rent houses and fixing them up and selling them. I, I was working with Austin Industries, the big construction company here in Dallas, handling real estate investments for them for a few years. And then when the SNL crisis came, I, I like to say I was 
I was too young to get in trouble, but old enough to take advantage because mm. I was 28, 29 years old and people are two or three years older than me had gotten a lot of trouble with the banks. For those of you who remember nine out of the 10 largest banks in the state of Texas went under then, you know, dozens of savings and loans went broke. And so there was opportunity all over the place if you weren't encumbered by debt, you know, from past projects. So I took advantage of that and started buying a lot of properties and office buildings, shopping centers, land, apartments from the RTC. I paid my way through SMU selling carpet door to door. And so I had an entrepreneurial spirit from SMU. And through that experience, I'd met a lot of people at SMU and you know, have begun kind of business relationships with them then from selling carpet actually to them for their dorm rooms and fraternity rooms. And so I was able to use and leverage those relationships to partner up with people to get money because I didn't have any because, again, I had paid my way through school. I was fortunate that I grew up, you know, with a great education at Holland Park Schools and at St. Mark's and at uh, SMU. But, you know, it was that education and my wits that got me going from there. And so after that, uh, I started in 1991. We started Me Casina with my brother, my, one of my college roommates, who was also one of my backers in real estate, who uh, is actually from Corsicana and is in the fruitcake business, from the College Street Bakery. And we started with a restaurant for $75,000 in uh, Preston Forest, never put another dime in it since then. And since that time, 31 years, we built extremely large business. We've got a couple thousand employees and a company we're very, very proud of with the Casina, the Mercury, um, Taco Diner. I'm a partner in Katie Chow Ice House and multiple other concepts in town. And so anyway, that, that started in 91. And with that, I just did a lot of real estate projects throughout the years. A lot of well-known properties. The most well-known is the iconic Highland Park Village Shopping Center, which we bought in May of uh, 2000. May of 2009 in the depths of the depression. What I learned in my career, John, was when things are bad, that is a time you got to grab it and run with it. And I learned that in the SNL deal in the late 80s and in the crisis, financial crisis 2009. We picked up a lot of property, including the village, because everyone else thought the world was ending. And really, growing up in Dallas, optimism is everyone, this city and this region always picks itself up and becomes even better than it was before. And so, you know, I'm a little concerned right now in the economy we're in because everything is so red hot. I mean, our sales in the Holland Park Village over 2019 are up 40%. Our restaurant sales are all up over 40%. And this region is just red hot and white hot, actually. And valuations are so high. It's like, and I try to tell my kids who are in college, it's like, this never ends pretty. And so I'm just concerned when the tide goes out. You don't know when the tide's going to go out, but when it does go out, you know, as long as you've got, you know, your debt loads low, you got ability to put capital, it's going to be another great opportunity coming up. But so anyway, well, that's I love it, Ray. That's a, that's a great way to get this started. You've shared lots of business lessons already. The intro comments, and you've talked about booms and boss, and there there've been lots of different opportunities in a boom and a boss, and all the cycles. Why real estate for you? You could have done. Even in all of that, you could have been in anything else. Why was it real estate for you that got you going? And why is it why is why is it real estate for you, Ray? Yeah, well, look, as a young person, a well, one I like the creative aspect of what I call value-added real estate. You know, you buy buy a building. When I bought the Highland Park Village, we came in. That's a great example that people can look at. You know, we bricked the streets, 
put trees in, uh, change all the landscaping. We've taken rents from $30 a foot to $300 a foot. All of that came from just polishing the apple up. And as a young person getting in the business, real estate is something you, you can highly leverage. You can bring capital in and it's just a tangible asset that uh, I enjoy. I mean, it's, you know, the, our restaurants, which is an, you know, it's an operating business, but really it's kind of a real estate business as well. And the lessons I've learned from both kind of transcend each other because when you arrive at a shopping center, the village is an example, your experience begins the second you step on the property. Is the garbage picked up? Is the grass cut? Are the flowers blooming? Those type things. And that sets your, you, you know, experience level. In the restaurants, it's the same thing. I always tell my kids, when you walk in a restaurant, there are really four things to look at. What's the lighting like? What's the temperature like? What's the sound system like? And what are the bathrooms like? Wow. And right there, before you even have a menu put in front of you, you've already determined if it's going to be a good or bad experience. Just next time you go in a restaurant, imagine all the sensory, sensories around you that determines your feeling for the place. If it's bad, loud music, you know, if it's lights that are too bright, or too low, just, just a lot of the little things. And those kind of interact. And what I found is I was able to take what I know from real estate and put it into the restaurant experience. And what I learned in the restaurant experience, I put into the real estate experience. That, okay. You mentioned creativity and um, you like to create things and you like all that about real estate. So I know that Dallas is ready and excited for the new entertainment district um, downtown, sure. the former Dallas Morning News building. And I know you're very involved in that. So that's creativity, that's excitement, that's creating something new. How do you see this space revitalizing downtown for the greater good? And what do you see, what do you envision the impact to be? Well, if you look at Dallas, and I've had fortune, I've had 61 year, you know, kind of view of the city being here. Downtown Dallas needs a catalyst to take it to the next level. In, this, in the midsection of downtown Dallas, between the Cedars and Main Street, is really a dead zone. And the city council last week, just approved a two and a half billion dollars to go in and basically tear down the Dallas Convention Center. And that's important because it was started in the late 50s. And over time, it was just kind of added on to, added on to, added on to. Hmm. And it's really when you compare to other convention centers in Nashville or Orlando or any other city, it just doesn't hold up. It's an arms race, basically, in the, in the facilities are building. Hmm. The city of Arlington is building a big convention center. They're building a convention center hotel. Fort Worth is tearing down their convention center. So when I bought the Dallas Morning News, I've, I've always, that was a building, people ask, what did you see? I, I had no idea what I was gonna do with it. I just knew it was a 400,000 foot building. It was a beautiful building. If you look at a map and you didn't know anything about Dallas, you'd think this is the crosshairs. It's got two rail stations. It's got so much going for it. 3,000 hotel rooms within two blocks. But the Dallas Convention Center, when you walk out the front door, there is zero to do. And so you have to get on a bus and take a bus to Gillies. You have to take a bus to wherever you're going. And so I bought it with the anticipation that Dallas would have to build another convention center. Now, two and a half years has gone by. The city has finally gotten around to approving it. And what it's going to do is it's going to open up the street system downtown. They're going to create 32 new acres of development between City Hall in the convention center from what the old buildings that they're going to rip out. And so, but you've got to have, so we'll be the front door. So when you go to the convention, you have a place to have your, your events. You have the Gillies type place you've got. And with all my restaurant portfolio, we're going to go down and recreate 
something like the Katy Trail House, Ice House, something like a Gillies. All these things and create, and it, for those familiar with San Antonio, it's gonna be much like the Pearl District is in San Antonio. But I've got to create the authentic Dallas story for it. And that's the thing I'm really wrestling with because we're not Caltown, we're not Energy Town, we're not Music City USA, we're not weird like Austin. I'm, I'm really trying to come up with the theme so when someone goes to a convention in Dallas and they step into my entertainment district, they can go back to wherever they're from and say, I experienced the Dallas experience. I love it. You know, um, I love that story. I'm looking forward to it. I, and I know we'll talk a lot more about that over time. We've seen progress in Dallas development downtown, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. and in southern Dallas to some extent over the past decade. And recently you and I were having a conversation and you were telling me about just all the investments that you're making in, in the southern sector of our community that's historically um, challenged and you and I believe that business is a force for good. So from your perspective, what more needs to be done to create prosperity and create more opportunities in the entire community? Sure. Well, I've invested for years in the southern sector. I currently have two shopping centers, one in Illinois and Hampton and another one that I bought at Hampton and Singleton. And you know, those areas are dense in population, but they've never been um, respected from the standpoint of viable retail that fits their needs. I don't know if that's kind of a long story, but example, yeah. Illinois and Hampton, I bought an old shopping center, 80,000 square feet. It was a former vineyard center that had been abandoned, covered in graffiti, potholed parking lot. So we went in and I believe in the broken window theory, which is Whenever there's graffiti, our property managers, you, you know, they have to paint over it that day. If there's burned out lights, they get replaced immediately. If there are potholes, they get fixed. Because if you respect whoever your customer might be, just like a restaurant, they're going to reward you with their business. And if you go down today, it's a, we put in an Aldi grocery store. It was somewhat of a food desert. And now all of a sudden, it's an incredibly vibrant center, 100% leased, and has been a, a great performer for me. Three years ago, or actually probably two years ago, we bought from the Dallas Housing Authority a 150,000 square foot center at Singleton in Hampton behind Pinkston High School. Again, pretty much an abandoned center. Uh, the grocery store had closed. You know, they had old, you know, old kind of rundown buildings in the parking lot. We went in. I underwrote a grocery store to go in there. It had been a food desert for all those people in the West Dallas housing. We brought a grocery store back. Actually, Dr. Ben Carson, who was at the time Secretary of HUD, he came and cut the ribbon on it. We have since torn down some of the buildings in front. I'm putting, if you can believe it, a Starbucks stand, you know, drive-through. You told me. A restaurant. We put in some other brand new restaurants down there. We put a new facade on it. So we're respecting, and, and not only are they being rewarded, we're being rewarded back owning the property because they're giving us their business, but we also give them a safe, you know, beautiful place to shop. And so I, I'm a big believer in the Southern sector and I don't, I think it's got so many dynamics going for it. Um, you know, and all the jobs that are being created down in, you know, Wilmer and Hutchins with all the warehouses. The big issue is just getting people to work. I mean, I'm one thing I'm working on right now is a van service to go for some churches in South Dallas, just to deliver people right to work. Cause a lot of them can't even get to a dark bus. And so, anyway, that's another conversation, but that's 
Ray, I really appreciate you sharing that. And I know when you and I talked about it, I said I didn't know all that you were doing there, and I wanted the world to hear that. So thank yeah. you for sharing that and you know letting others know, hey, having great success there and the opportunities there for anyone that wants to go invest there. Okay, let's talk about public service. Um, sure. you, have a, you have a family history of public service. Mm-hmm. And I actually read, I didn't know this, I read recently that your great-grandfather, um, Hempstead Washburn, was mayor of Chicago during the, um, I, think, I think it was 1893, the World's Fair. Yeah, the Columbia so, Exhibition. Yeah. Okay, so so tell us, was is being involved in the community, is that something that your family encourages? Is that just a family type uh, thing? Yeah, well, actually, his father, Elihu Washburn, was Secretary of State under Grant. Ambassador, yeah, so he was Secretary of State and Ambassador to France for eight years. Then his son Hempstead was mayor of Chicago and then the 1893 yeah. World's I Fair. Not, I did not know that. Yeah, it goes, it goes, goes way back. And so, uh, Paul Bear for Lincoln, anyway, uh, way back. And so, public service, I started, uh, I think I was either 25 or 26. I was the youngest member ever of the city of Dallas Plan Commission. And I was a babe in the woods on the in the Plan Commission when I when I did it, but uh, I was on the plan commission for about four years. And when Annette Strauss was mayor, then I went in, I chaired the city of Dallas thoroughfare commission, all this stuff back in, you know, the mid 1980s. And so I I got a lot of public service in there. And then I went, uh, you know, as you said earlier, I went to Washington DC and ran the overseas private investment corporation, um, which is a $30 billion government agency. And I've just served on multiple boards and, and things like that. So love it, love it. Okay, yeah. well, you know, I want I'm enjoying this conversation, Ray, and I want yeah. the audience to know that if they're enjoying it as much as I as I am, please please like and share this video and be sure to subscribe to join us in future conversations on how business can be a force for good. Ray, let's talk more about your public service and you've talked about your time leading the overseas private investment corporation. Why did you get involved in that? And what were your thoughts going in? And what are you most proud of accomplishing in that role? Well, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation was what was the former Marshall Plan. For those who remember your history books after World War II, and it was set up to provide funding for companies to go into countries with a GDP of, uh, you know, very low GDP per person, for example, most of the countries of Africa, most of South America, I mean, basically the whole world, except Europe, United States, and Japan, basically. And what it was is if your business wanted to go to, let's say, Botswana and build a hydroelectric plant or build a factory to employ people, but no bank would lend you money because that country might have a dicey political situation or a lot of things that we would go in and either guarantee your loan or loan you money, but the organization I ran makes about 800 million a year in profit to the US government. So we're not an aid agency, we're not a grant making agency, we're actually an investment bank for the US government. And why that's important is it creates stability in countries. Stability in countries is good foreign policy for the United States, it's good for national security. I agree. I, I put a lot of our time and emphasis in the Northern Triangle of Central America in Guatemala, Honduras, those countries, Nicaragua, to loan because the immigration issue we have right now in the United States, people want to stay in their home country, but they need a job. And so to get a job in these countries, they need um, factories built, they need electric power grids brought to them, they need roads built, 
so many things. And that's what we went in the, to provide. So I had business in 180 countries. I traveled to 36 in my time there. Nowhere of, uh, you, you know, nowhere in Europe. I traveled to most of the countries in Africa and in South America, Vietnam and those things. So it was a very rewarding experience from that standpoint. Great thing was I was a Senate confirmed physician. I reported to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee into the president. So that, that was a very rewarding uh, experience to have that. It's, you know, sitting in that horseshoe in front of the Senate, you watch on TV, these guys getting grilled. It was good doing an organization both Republicans and Democrats employed. Uh, yeah. So what were you most, what, what, what accomplishment are you most proud of when you led that organization? At OPIC? Yes. Okay, so OPIC had been slated to be zeroed out as an organization when I took over. And in fact, at my hearing, they asked, why did I want to go in to a, a particular agency that had been zeroed out by the federal government, the Office of Management Budget, and I knew it was too important. So I was able to convince the president and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee that it was too important for our foreign policy of the U.S. Because when I traveled, I would go with the Secretary of State or the Vice President, and we'd visit a country, and you know they can do a lot of talk, but I'm the one that had the cash, and so I could go in and do projects. And so we reformed the agency. It's now called the Develop United States International Development Finance Corporation, which is a mouthful, or the DFC. And so it was totally restructured. It was doubled in size from 30 billion to 60 billion. We pulled in parts of the State Department and USAID. So it was incredibly satisfying to restructure agency, which you never really get to do. And I was able to drop the mic and leave stage by actually accomplishing something more than just shuffling paper for three years. So, um, you know, Ray, something you and I have in common is we, we study leaders. We were students of leadership. Yeah. So tell, tell, tell me, Ray, you've met a lot of great leaders. You've been around a lot of great leaders. Talk to us about one leader that, that stands out in your mind and why. Yeah, it's history, me, contemporary. It, just tell us one, one leader. Yeah, yeah. No, it'd be Jim Baker. Uh, and Jim Baker was the former, you know, Secretary of State, Secretary of the Treasury, ran two presidential campaigns. He was able to navigate the shark infested waters of D.C. pretty effectively from 1976 when he ran Ford's campaign as a very young man. He was like 42 or something when he ran Ford's campaign against. And then, you know, he ran Bush's campaign against Reagan in 1980, which they lost. And then he did such an effective job. The person that he ran against, then selected him to be his chief of staff. So hmm. he was, what, what is interesting about him as a leader is how he's been able to navigate so many difficult positions in different jobs. I mean, not only state, but also at treasury as chief of staff. Um, so in the political world, but he was also a very effective lawyer at Baker and Botts. That's his family. If you know that law firm, that's yep. Baker's family. So, uh, Anyway, I would say that's somebody I look at and go, wow, that's how did he accomplish all that he has? You know, uh, I know um, you mentioned earlier that you're a big Dallas person. It's all Dallas. Yeah. So, Ray, just for, for good measure, I'll ask, as you think about all your real estate adventures and creativity, are there other places outside of Dallas that you're currently invested in or that you're looking at that hold a lot of promise that you want to go create special things at? Yeah, I, I've got... Uh, a lot of investments in Colorado Springs, Colorado, of all places. And it's a beautiful city. I've got some downtown buildings. I built some buildings out by their airport. I built the headquarters for U.S. Army Space Command. And it's an interesting city. It's one of these second tier cities that is so close to Denver, it can never be a major city on its own. Mm. But with the military base there and cyber and all those things, it's got an incredible growth. And it's 
just a beautiful city, but it's probably six or 700,000 people now. So, I mean, it's a major town. It's not, you know, I haven't gone out to some little mountain town out there. So I'm a big believer in Colorado Springs. I love it. Ray, thank you so much for your time. This can go on and on and on just as we keep talking. Thank you for everything that you do to make our community as strong as it can be. Thank you for all that you do to make the world a better place. Um, Thank you for joining us today. All right. Thank you, John. Love it. If you've enjoyed this conversation, again, please like and share this video and be sure to subscribe to join us in future conversations on how business can be a force for good. You've heard today, Ray Washburn is a force for good. Um, Thank you to those tuning in. I look forward to many more good conversations in the future as we work together to ensure a better community, a better world for all. Thank you.